You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everybody. I'm coming to you as usual from Buenos Aires, and my guest for this week is John Wood Jr. John is joining us from Los Angeles. He is a writer and commentator whose work focuses on creating better cross-aisle conversations and creating more harmony among polarized groups so that they can work together on contentious issues. He formerly ran for Congress uh, in the 43rd Californian District, and he is the Director of Media Development at Better Angels. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for having me, Iona. It's a pleasure to be here. I would like to start by asking you about your family background, because I know that you come from an interestingly multicultural and multiracial family. And Mm -hmm. um, as I think many people who follow me, anyone who follows me on Twitter will know I'm currently beginning my new book, which is about mixed race identities. And as I always say, being mixed race is neither a fault nor a merit, nor even particularly interesting in and of itself, but it is an opportunity if you want to take it. Uh, It can serve as a really effective bridge building opportunity and role. And I feel that you are one of the people who has really run with that opportunity. So I would love to hear a little bit about how you grew up, about your family, and how that inspired your later work. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, well, I appreciate the way that you described that as in being mixed race, as being not a merit or demerit, but an opportunity. And I think the reason it is an opportunity is because it frequently gives a person sort of an intimate window through which to see different faces of the human experience and Sometimes the windows through which you are able to see are windows through which the people on either side of them are not really able to see through in order to recognize the other, except maybe through a person like yourself in some cases. And that's, I have, have uh, some experience being, uh, I guess, a, a bridge between different cultural perspectives in that way. Um, I grew up in, well, Los Angeles, California, generally speaking. I grew up in a middle-class multicultural uh, community, a place uh, called Culver City, where much of the motion picture studios are located in LA. And um, I come from a biracial and uh, uh, you could almost say bipartisan background, my dad is uh, white and from the South and also a baby boomer, was born in 1950. My mother is an African-American from inner city Los Angeles. Uh, she was born in the 60s, 1963. Um, my dad uh, comes from a very affluent uh, 
family background. Uh, my grandfather on my father's side was a record industry pioneer, a man by the name of Randy Wood. He had a uh, was known for a couple of different things. He started the first um, national radio program to broadcast rhythm and blues and gospel music, basically black music, to a national audience. And after that, he started a record label called Dot Records, which was the largest independent record label in the United States uh, in the 1950s. Um, and uh, so that was my dad's background, coming from the South and then growing up in Bel Air, Beverly Hills, uh, uh, Los Angeles. And my mother from inner city Los Angeles, they have very distinctly different cultural and socioeconomic backgrounds. And so I grew up in this very multicultural, diverse, uh, middle-class community. But on weekends, I would go visit my mother's relatives who lived in different parts of, of inner city Los Angeles, places like places like uh, Inglewood and just outside of Watts, and south, south central L.A., and then on the other hand, during holidays, I would visit my dad's family uh, in San Diego, and particularly my grandparents in uh, La Jolla. And my grandparents, when I was growing up, um, until they passed uh, in recent years, they lived in a house uh, in the coastal community of La Jolla, uh, in or near San Diego. They had a house with a uh, million-dollar view of the ocean. It was a home that uh, was not too far couple blocks removed, I think, from uh, from Mitt Romney's house. Uh, Mitt Romney had a home for which he was criticized uh, during the 2012 presidential campaign because it had a car elevator in it, which people thought mm-hmm. was uh, a grotesque <laughs> display of wealth. What a lot of people don't realize is that uh, Romney's wife, I think she had a, a MS, I think, or some debilitating mm-hmm. disease, which was the reason why they had that um, that elevator put in. So, but you know, uh, subtleties escape uh, political conversation so much of the time. But growing up, I grew up um, sort of day to day in this multicultural middle class environment while also bouncing back and forth from an inner city, uh, you know, um, much poorer uh, black environment to a um, older upscale uh, white environment, I suppose you could say. And so that was the cultural panorama in which I was sort of used to residing. And even within that, um, I had cousins. I have a cousin on my and an aunt on my father's side who are Brazilian. I have an uncle who's Jewish. And on my mother's side, I have cousins who are half uh, Mexican and Belizean and aunts and of the same uh, uh, the same ethnicities, and in the school that I went to, uh, the Culver City School District is. I, last time I checked, it was ranked as the fourth most diverse school district in America, uh, which I didn't realize until I was older. But I grew up uh, very good friends with Jewish kids and Korean and Japanese kids and kids from the Middle East and course, you know, white kids and black kids, uh, some from the area, some most who were bust in from inner city parts of Los Angeles. Uh, and so, you know, I always had that variety of cultures, but also uh, socioeconomic uh, backgrounds that surrounded me both in school and more intimately within my own family. And, um, you know, that certainly had a lot to do with framing my understanding 
of race, the relationships, or at least the the, the difficulties that can be presented uh, for people seeking to relate to each other across the chasm of disparate cultural experiences, and the way in which the distance between these experiences can make it difficult for us to achieve, in this country, a common sort of understanding of our of national values and heritage uh, and priorities um, in our in our politics. And so, um, yeah, growing up at the intersection of all of these different social and cultural perspectives had a lot to do with motivating me, I guess, to be something of a of a translator, if you will, or something of a mediator in my personal and professional life for people seeking to navigate uh, the space uh, between these uh, these various cultural points of view. I think it's really interesting that it was your your white grandfather who was uh, um, a, a kind of champion of African American music styles and was so active in that movement. Or what we think of as African American music styles, but maybe we should just think of as, well, we can also think of as just American music styles. Yeah. Right. This is yeah. part of a, an American heritage. It's impossible mm -hmm. to imagine a American music without black music. Yes, um, it's such a central sort of part of that. But that also kind of means that if your American black music is your heritage even if you are Korean American or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. I certainly agree with that. Um, well, it is an irony and that's not to say that my grandfather was not a, you know, product of his time and place. And as much as he was a person who was, you know, I mean, born in the first fifth of the 20th century from the South. And there were certainly, um, there are certainly, I think, ways in which the changing uh, racial and social landscape of the country probably challenged some of his uh, some of his sensibilities as time went along. Uh, but nevertheless, yeah, he was a person who always had a great love and affection for black culture, and I think black people too. Uh, my dad took it to a different level because my dad grew up listening to the music that my grandfather, you know, produced and uh, played on the radio and later produced in the, on Dot Records, although most of Dot's music was not black music, but some of it certainly was. And my dad, he, through these things, he wound up developing a love of jazz music. And that's what jazz and my dad's relationship with boxing and baseball. My dad's heroes in life growing up were uh, Muhammad Ali, Willie Mays, and also the jazz pianist Bill Evans, who was a white jazz pianist who played, who achieved initial uh, uh, recognition playing with Miles Davis and John Coltrane. Of course, my, my dad is himself a jazz pianist. Um, you know, dad fell in love with black culture through black uh, art and, um, and, and athletic uh, contributions as well. And so my dad just kind of moved <laughs> in some sense. Uh, he was never the type of white person with whom I'm kind of familiar who felt bad about being white or who sort of sought to, I guess, forget his 
white heritage and by adopting a, a new cultural veneer, but he just loved black music and black culture. And so he raised me saying precisely what it is that you just said, or in essence, which is that uh, black music and black culture is American music and American culture. And not only that, but that in his estimation, it represented the height of American popular culture, particularly during those years uh, when my dad was coming of age in the 50s and 60s. And so, you know, my white father raised me to be very proud of being of being black in that way or of being sort of the heir to this culture, cultural uh, legacy. But he also always framed it in the context of our understanding that, you know, black, white, and of all colors, uh, you know, given the fact that we were an artistic musical family by background, my mother is also a singer and a dancer and, uh, um, and a woman with her own musical reputation in her own right. Um, dad raised me with the understanding that the richness of American cultural uh, history is a product of the contributions of people from all of these groups, certainly, and perhaps in some senses, maybe even particularly African-Americans, but that of all colors, uh, you know, Americans who contributed to this rich artistic legacy uh, belonged in the same category of, uh, of uh, exemplars of this high American tradition of, of music and, and, and popular culture, uh, broadly speaking. So I was raised with that, um, with that way of looking at things, and it's certainly certainly colored, no, no pun intended, but it certainly, <laughs> certainly colored my own uh, perspective of myself, I guess, as African-American, a person of mixed race, but just more broadly speaking, as an American incorporating these various particular elements of identity. Mm. So can you tell me a bit about your work with Better Angels? Um, I'd love to know not just mm-hmm. what you're kind of aiming to do, but the nitty gritty of what you do. Um, I know you have these kind of day-long encounters that you organize between people from different sides of the political aisle. And could you talk me through what it would be like if I went to one of those events, Better Angel events, and perhaps uh, describe one or two things that have come about as a result or personal stories that you've heard that have have occurred after mm-hmm. after one of those kind of events? Sure. Yeah, by all means. Yeah. So, well, broadly speaking, of course, Better Angels is a national, bipartisan, largely grassroots organization. We're a member organization uh, with, we have about a thousand volunteers or so nationally, in addition to our membership, um, or included amongst our membership. And our our, uh, cause is the depolarization of American political society, not necessarily to make it to where everybody, you know, becomes a political moderate or centrist or achieves greater policy agreement, although, you know, some of that might be greater consensus around particular issues, I think is possibly a a long-term result of this kind of work. But our work is more about humanizing our understanding uh, and our view of those who reside on the other side of the political divide, social divide. And to that end, we have various programs and means by which we pursue this goal um, on the academic level, in the area of uh, politics and public policy and government, uh, but particularly uh, on the grassroots and community level. 
that's where our work has been most covered to date in the in the media. Uh, and so we have a number of different workshops, but the one that's best known is something that's called a red-blue workshop, and, and that is where we take a small handful of of reds or people who lean politically conservative. Um, it's sort of funny to call conservatives reds. I, know. That's a, uh, I find that so them. hard to get used to. And <laughs> yeah. the election map is all backwards as well. I'm used to always red <laughs> represents the Labour Party, um, the left wing. Right. Yeah, it's really strange. The red flag, red roses, yeah. you know, whatever Americans. <laughs> right. Well, and it used to be that way in the United States, too. The, 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 you know, the liberal and the conservative, well, the Republican and Democratic parties, so we would, you know, generally think of as the conservative and mm-hmm. liberal parties in the United States, um, used to be, the colors used to be reversed. The It used to be the Democrats who were uh, identified as red and the Republicans identified as blue. And through some through some peculiar media incident, I can't quite recall the story, but some major network switched the colors for their broadcast. Uh, I think this maybe have been 20 or 30 years ago. And the switch just stuck for some reason. So it's a story worth looking into. But um, so when we say reds, we mean conservatives, and when we say blues, we mean liberals or people who lean liberal or vote uh, liberal or democratic. Um, and so we bring small groups of people from each side into a shared space where across the course of a about seven hours or so, they get the opportunity not so much to you know argue or debate about politics and policy, uh, but rather to speak from the vantage point of their own personal experience or their own lived experience, you might say, so as to explain why it is they see politics the way they do and to provide a window to the other side as to the nature of, as to the internal dialogue that takes place uh, within individuals and between individuals on the opposing side of the political divide. And this is done through specific uh, exercises that are pulled from the principles of family therapy. The architect of the Better Angels Red Blue Workshop is an individual named uh, Professor Bill Doherty, William Doherty from the University of Minnesota, who's one of America's foremost uh, family therapists, marriage marriage, uh, uh, counselors. And so he applied uh, the same sorts of techniques he applies to facilitating communication between couples on the brink of divorce, uh, he applies, he also uh, adapted to the context of political relationships, which I think is fairly <laughs> yeah. appropriate for our country <laughs> at the moment. But it's, but as far as what the experience would actually be like, uh, Iona, if you were to participate in one of our workshops, so it would begin with your uh, coming and sitting down and being introduced to a group of, let's say, 11 other people or so, five other individuals on the, what, you know, in our context would be the blue side, and, and let's say six individuals on the, on the red side. Let's say I'm on the red side. And uh, there would be two moderators uh, facilitating the interaction. They would introduce themselves, and the other individuals at the table would get the opportunity to... Uh, uh, to introduce themselves, and then we would proceed to break up into separate groups to engage in different exercises, and coming f- from those exercises, re-engage 
with the larger group uh, in order to complete them. So the first exercise that, that the workshop begins with is something called a stereotypes exercise. And so in the stereotypes exercise, the reds and the blues both retreat with a separate moderator uh, to a different room or to a different space. And therein, uh, the moderator walks the group through a process of identifying all of the major stereotypes that they feel that the other side of the aisle uh, unfairly holds about their side. And so in general, you know, there's always some variety, but in general, the main stereotypes for each side tend to be consistent uh, from group to group of the same political orientation uh, from workshop to workshop. So in other words, uh, liberals or the blue side will generally uh, identify things like uh, stereotypes like they uh, are, are lazy. They don't want to work. They want the government to do everything for them. Or another common stereotype about blues is that they hate America. They're not patriotic. They don't, they don't care about this country. Uh, could even be something like they are, they are uh, uh, baby killers, that they, that they uh, don't care about unborn uh, uh, life and they're rabidly pro-abortion or this, that, or the other. On the conservative side, the number one stereotype that, um, or they, or maybe it is that they hate rich people, or they hate successful people, or, or uh, you know they they don't you know they they don't like people with money. On the conservative side, the most common stereotype is almost well, it's most common stereotype. It's almost always number one, is that conservatives are racist, that they do not like people of color. Um, they also. Uh, uh, frequently report being thought of as sexist, uh, that they don't like women in particular or think that women should occupy some lower station in the social political hierarchy. Uh, they often see themselves as accused of disliking poor people um, or uh, otherwise uh, favoring, favoring the rich. So these are the sorts of stereotypes that typically come out of these uh, these exercises and many more. But after listing the stereotypes, the moderators ask each side to reflect on what the kernels of truth might be in the stereotypes. And so after having listed all these stereotypes that each side thinks as largely incorrect, each side is then asked to look at the individual stereotypes and determine whether or not there is perhaps a grain of truth. Not not that they are true as a general rule, but to see if they might not be able to reflect on whether or not there is a seed of truth from which the stereotype springs. Uh, and usually uh, the two sides are able to reflect on such kernels of truth. So the blue side may look at the stereotype that says that, you know, uh, progressives or liberals or they, they don't want to work or they want the government to do everything for them. And generally liberals will disagree with this as a stereotype. Uh, but frequently our blue participants will reflect and say, well, but I can, I can think of somebody maybe in my life or somebody who I'm aware of who does take advantage of the system, who, who takes advantage of welfare or who otherwise uh, uses the system to get by without, without wanting to work or without wanting to contribute. And on the conservative side, it's not at all uncommon to hear conservatives say, well, in general, 
we conservatives are not racist, but we do know that there are people on the right, people who call themselves conservative, uh, who are racist or who may have bigoted feelings towards immigrants or people of color or who may have sexist tendencies. And they tend to be aware that there is at least some pocket of such individuals who exist on the political right, even if typically the individuals who we observe in these workshops do not uh, associate or consciously associate themselves with those, with those, um, mm -hmm. with those individuals. Um, and so that's, that's the first exercise. And the exercises become progressively more engaging um, as, as the event unfolds. Uh, eventually in the workshop, there is an exercise that breaks up uh, each each group into, let's say if you have a group of six on each side, you'll now have two groups of three on each side, and each group of three is then paired with the opposing group from the other side of the aisle, and they'll be able to ask one another questions about their beliefs and why they believe uh, something the way that they do, and the moderator is there to help make sure that their questions are framed in a way that actually allows for an honest uh, response on the substance of one's belief without carrying any tone of mm -hmm. demonization, uh, let's say, or without carrying an unnecessarily emotionally provocative sort of, sort of uh, tint to it. And that can be a difficult thing to do because when we are used to speaking about our political dis differences in pejorative terms, it can be hard for, <laughs> let's say, a conservative to, to say something to to, to figure out how to ask a question about, let's say, abortion without it sounding something like, like so why don't you care about uh, unborn babies? Or, or for a liberal to say something, to ask a question about health care without it sounding something like, well, well, why don't you care if, if certain people don't get health care? <laughs> you know, uh, the moderator will help them reframe these statements to sound more along the lines of something like, uh, so why do you feel that a free, why do you feel that uh, the government can't effectively provide health care for, for, uh, for most people? Or why is it that you think that uh, it is better for a woman to have the freedom to choose as opposed to uh, as opposed to mandating uh, that a woman be able to that, that a woman bring a child to term in most uh, in most instances, um, even if she might otherwise prefer not to, uh, to try and get them to articulate their questions in neutral phrases as much as possible. Now we've had some amazing relationships come out of these workshops. Um, the very first workshop took place in South Lebanon, Ohio, after the 2016 presidential election. The founders of the organization brought together a group of Hillary Clinton voters and a group of Donald Trump voters uh, to engage in these exercises. And I have a friend who has since become a very prominent member of Better Angels, a fellow named Greg Smith, who's a working class uh, former police chief, small town police chief in Ohio. He's an evangelical Christian. And uh, he's, he's told this story about, about that first workshop where he noticed that there is an individual there by the name of Kuyar Mustashli. Uh, and Kuyar is uh, he's an immigrant uh, from, I think he's a naturalized citizen, but he's 
an immigrant. Um, oh goodness, I think he's from Iran. And uh, <laughs> at some point uh, in during the during the workshop, uh, the question, the topic got onto the subject of of religious beliefs, and uh, and uh, Greg said something to the effect of, "Well, what do you think about?" A group like a group like uh, ISIS, because for for Greg, uh, the existence of ISIS and groups like ISIS defined his view of Islam. And Kuyar responded to that by saying that saying that you don't even have to finish that question. My religion has been hijacked. And Greg said that that hit him deeply because it made him think about certain Christians, and maybe he was thinking about people with the Western you know, uh, the Westboro Baptist Church or certain certain Christian uh, groups that he felt had hijacked mm-hmm. his religion and given it a name that it didn't deserve. And so Greg and Kuyar, uh, they bonded over that and they got to know each other more deeply over the course of the workshop. And ever since then, they've been recruiting for Better Angels Together and speaking at events um, uh, hand in hand, so to speak. Uh, they've become really, they've become best of friends and it's a it's been a transformative relationship for both of them. Coming out of that workshop, uh, Greg brought Kuyar to his to his church as a personal guest, and Kuyar brought Greg to his mosque <laughs> as a personal guest. And I don't think that Greg ever expected to step foot in a mosque uh, prior to that, you know. So uh, I, I'm sure they're continually trying to convert each other to this day, but <laughs> they remain. Uh, they remain uh, good friends. And I've been a part of workshops, too, and have organized several uh, in Los Angeles. I organized a workshop actually in the very location I'm speaking to you from. I'm talking to you from a, from a private school in South L.A. that I happened to work with. And uh, we organized a workshop that was majority African-American that had whites on each side, but it was also majority African-American on each side of, uh, on each side of the workshop, on the red side and the blue side. And what was really interesting uh, for me about that, and I have recruited most of the people who participated in this workshop, um, but what was interesting to me about that was seeing both white liberals and white conservatives participating in this group, observing the dynamics of the relationship that exists between black liberals and black conservatives and sort of taking a step back in terms of perhaps their own sorts of stereotypical views of people on either side of the black political divide in America. Now, most African-Americans, as I think you know, are, you know, are a registered Democrat. Um, nevertheless, there's a social and cultural division in the black community, which is much more reflective of the broader liberal conservative cultural divide in the United States. It's just that party affiliation tends to lump up on one side of the aisle for what I would argue to be historical reasons that somewhat obscure the fact that in many respects, uh, your average African-American Democrat is not necessarily as culturally liberal or progressive leaning as is your average uh, uh, Anglo-American Democrat. And so the reason this became fascinating was because of the fact that I think that many white liberals have the sense that um, black conservatives are people who have kind of, I don't know, sort of sold out to their oppressors in some sense. 
certainly some black liberals view that way too. Um, whereas many white conservatives uh, look at black liberals as people who just overwhelmingly exaggerate the degree to which racial oppression and and uh, race race based uh, um, violence, let's say, at the hands of the police or otherwise uh, racially uh, motivated or related discrimination within the institutional landscape of the United States is in fact a reality. But in listening to the conversations that transpire between the black liberals and the black conservatives in this group, the black liberals um, uh, very much tended to validate the concerns of black conservatives who felt that black liberals relied too much on the government and too much uh, on the state for much of uh, for much of their lifestyle, and I think it was striking to, to for white liberals to see that black liberals were empathetic to a degree with that concern. Whereas for white conservatives, I think that they were struck by the degree to which black conservatives conservatives validated. Uh, much of what black liberals claimed in terms of exp- the the effects of of uh, racism and racism at the hands of institutions or white people in the context of their own personal experience and their own personal dealings, perhaps with law enforcement and other figures, the difference between the white the black liberals and the black conservatives uh, was not. I mean, there certainly was a degree of disagreement over the real. Uh, the degree to which either racism uh, on the one hand or government dependence on the other were problems, but they both agreed that they tended to agree that they were problems. Their difference was more in the attitude and in the political positions they adopted in dealing with these problems and the degree to which they sort of perceived support of one political party as being necessary to counterbalance uh, one aspect of these sort of commonly recognized problems in the black community, as opposed to supporting another party that may make some good points, but that ultimately would be too negligent of the, of the side of the issue of obstacles facing the African-American community that that, that, that particular uh, group, be it black liberals or black conservatives, was more pressingly mm. concerned with. But there was a common cultural frame that the white liberals and the white conservatives just had never really, I think, seen seen before, a communication that they had not appreciated. And it caused them, I think, to be more fl- reflective of their impressions of people of color on, on each side of that divide. So it was a fascinating conversation that you just don't usually get a chance to see in our day-to-day uh, political media sort of mm. environment. Yes, I you know I know very little about uh, African-American culture, uh, politics, how it affects um, African-Americans. I'm you know just watching from the sidelines mm. and my own background is um, British and Indian and I live in Argentina. Mm. And, but I've been very much, uh, I've been absolutely fascinated by the conversations between John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry on um, mm-hmm. their kind of beat is African-American issues in the States. 
and they have a regular right. podcast. And I believe you've also been interviewed by Glenn. Mm-hmm. Who, That's right. Glenn, if you're ever listening, please come on this podcast. I, I kind of, I <laughs> sort of slight, somewhat idolize Glenn, I have to say. Likewise, <laughs> likewise. Glenn has he's, he's amazing. Um, and I was very struck by, you know, I'm used to this rather, I've definitely heard the kind of shallow discourse that people like Candace Owens um, propagate, which is, mm-hmm. Oh, everybody is just exaggerating. There is no real discrimination. Mm-hmm. Just get your act in gear. Mm-hmm. Kind of don't be lazy and you'll be fine and you will succeed. You know, the mm-hmm. idea that things are stacked against you is your imagination. I don't think that's particularly racist. I think that is a, a, a kind of attitude that a lot of people on the right who have a less sophisticated way of thinking have. You know, it's all about individual agency. And mm-hmm. knowing that both Glenn and John are Republicans, I w- was expecting them to take that line, but they don't. To tell you the truth, uh, Glenn and John, I do not believe that either of them are Republicans. Although Glenn Lowry, at one time, very famously, was a very prominent uh, Reagan conservative. Right. I guess this would have been back ah, in the okay. 80s. And he... Yeah, and I believe that today he is a registered Democrat, oh, but okay. but I believe he would also describe himself as a conservative, a conservative Democrat, which is a fairly it's a rare thing in the United States. It's it's the only thing more rare than a conservative Democrat is a liberal Republican. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, <laughs> Mc, John yeah, no, it's true, it's true. John McWhorter uh, is much more sort of a conventional, conventionally liberal Democrat, but like many. I think, or at least increasingly many, um, you know, more sort of traditionally liberal intellectuals in the United States, John McWhorter has pushed back very strongly against what he perceives to be the excesses of identity politics, and particularly in the African-American community, uh, I think that he, he does look at a fair amount of the sort of um, racial uh Demagog- de- demagoguery that comes from the left towards white people in particular and the degree to which racism can properly be ascribed or the degree to which the problems of the black community can be properly attributed, attributed to contemporaneous racism as being sort of so much paranoia on the counts of many people uh, uh, in the black community who are you know, politically consolidated on the left. So in that sense, he says many things and his cultural focus is such that he's gets a lot of sympathy from conservatives, but uh, he himself does not consider himself to be a political conservative. He's, he's just pushing against the grain of the mainstream of black racial discourse in the country. I mean, not knowing, uh, I mean, not knowing enough to know what the kind of proportions are it's clear that both things happen there can be structural disadvantages many of them are historical but they continue to have effects into the present day because you know who your parents are how much your parents earn what property they have all of those things affect your life chances Um, Mm -hmm. and those you know your parents may have very little money for historical reasons which have especially if you're african-american because only a couple of it's only a couple of generations back that we had or 
only a generation or so back that we still had Jim Crow and or you guys still had Jim Crow and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, clearly, individual agency is also important. And there's a sort of and it's important not to become paranoid and very easy to become mm -hmm. paranoid. And I there's a kind of middle point as well, which is um, culture, which I talked about quite a lot with Thomas Thomas Chaston Williams when he was on the podcast, which yeah. is African-American culture, for instance, but this would be true of any group, has its very positive aspects and its very negative aspects. And the yeah. negative aspects may mitigate against your success, things that the mm. community doesn't value. And that is also not your kind of individual responsibility in a way, because you didn't choose those community values and you didn't choose to be yeah. born into that community. So there's there's a ton of gray area. And the one thing I don't find useful is always talking in terms of groups and group identities, which is why I love what you're mm -hmm. doing at Better Angels, because I think mm. that the absolute best um, defense against racism and prejudice and discrimination is knowing people from the other side. Right. The, the, yeah. the best thing we can do is, I mean, the best way we can persuade people, is, for example, to change their minds on something is to become friends with them so they respect us and what we have to say. Yeah. Um, and I think the best way to prevent discrimination is is to be friends. It's not perfect, but, you know, I think it's probably the, the best path that we can take. Mm. Right. Yeah, well, that's... That's that's true. When we engage people uh, with the assumption that their group identity marker is determinative of their values or perspective or personality, we prevent we prevent ourselves from being able to really engage the person, him or herself, because we've decided to substitute whatever the individual content of that person's character actually is with the formula for what we assume to be true about the people in the group that that person happens to be a part of. And that's a tremendously dangerous thing. Um, and when our assumptions about other groups of people are negative, it locks us into certain expectations of those people which justify us in potentially disrespecting or dismissing or disregarding or even discriminating against others on the basis of attributes that, one, are superficial and possibly beyond their control, but that, two, are not necessarily indicative of who they are as individuals. And so our programming in Better Angels, I think, absolutely is effective in helping people to see beyond those stereotypes um, particularly in the context of political labels. Uh, I mean, you know, the sorts of interpersonal prejudice that can exist between people in this country just on the basis of their being a self-identified Democrat or Republican or liberal or conservative is oftentimes quite severe. Now, in those cases, of course, political positions are held, are do correspond to actual points of view that people have. And, um, you know, those intellectual or ideological differences can be real. But to take a person's particular political 
viewpoint and to use that as a proxy for determining whether or not the person is actually on some fundamental level a good person or not, or a person with experiences and perspectives beneath the sorts of general political vantage points that they have that might not resonate with your own perspective or your own experiences in a way that you might find informative. Um, to the, the political stereotypes that we have about one another in this country prevents us from being able to make those connections, those deeper connections, as human beings. And those deeper connections are necessary for, I think, the health of our social fabric and the health of our civil society uh, to, well, to persist, to endure. Um, so in all of those ways, whether it's politics or race, I do agree with, what you're, with, with the point that you're making. Um, I would say, though, that for me, there's a certain tension between the limitations that we put upon ourselves in, in attributing too much value or social capital merely to our having attained or inherited a particular political or cultural or racial label. Um, there's a tension between the limitations of that way of thinking and, on the other hand, the limitations that I think present themselves to a certain point of view which seeks to transcend such group identities so entirely that we sort of lose the framework of common cultural reference in being able to establish a certain sort of community uh, cohesion and shared uh, shared narrative of experience that inevitably sort of evolves around shared experience and shared history and so forth. I do think that there is a fair degree to which cultural cultural labels facilitate a shared understanding within groups that if one can learn to speak to those labels and the experiences or perspectives, that they may indicate uh, in an authentic way uh, that these labels can be part of a vernacular that can actually facilitate a stronger understanding uh, that could potentially exist between separate groups and within members of a specific group. The challenge is in coming to understand at what point the interest of a particular group or the identity of a particular subgroup uh, ought appropriately to be uh, set aside in favor of a larger, more universal identity, whether that be an identity encompassing people of a shared nation or just humanity uh, in general. Um, I, I think that you, we have to be willing to speak in sort of the language of larger group identities that transcend the narrower identities of political or ethnic tribe, ironically, in order for us to be able to harness, I think, the full uh, value of the internal experience of the individual so that it can be communicative, communicated at scale, if that, makes, if that makes some sense. And I oftentimes see people embracing an ethos of individualism that seeks to be transcending of all labels. And I'm not sure that that, 
that that really works uh, beyond a certain point because I do think that we're limited in some to some degree uh, to be to only be able to effectively communicate with one another within common frames of reference. And I think that certain linguistic markers for those frames of reference have to be employed in order to facilitate those conversations. So there's a little bit of nuance to my to my view, but I do agree that the identity politics of the type that we have seen evolve in this country, and I think more broadly speaking in the West and so forth, that seems to have reinstantiated kind of an inverted uh, sort of racial and class-based caste system wherein people who once had, who belong to groups who once had, priv- who have privilege now must be made to sort of uh, de-emphasize their privilege now, or at least, you know, de-emphasize their own right to speak so as to compensate for their historic privilege. To me, that obliterates the sovereignty of the, the, the fundamental worth of the individual in our conversations. So I'm very, I'm, I'm as concerned with that as you are, I believe. I think that there's perhaps uh, one way of looking at it is there are two ways of dealing with your group identity. So group identity mm-hmm. does, uh, obviously does affect your life, even identities you didn't choose for yourself. Because mm-hmm. inevitably, when people see you, they have certain expectations. I think that's unavoidable, whether you're you know, racist or absolutely not racist. It's an artifact of the human brain to generalize. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, usually quite a useful trait. Otherwise, we would all be like Funes, um, Funes uh, el memorioso, Funes the kind (laughs) of the rememberer. In Borges' story, if anybody uh, is listening to this isn't familiar with that story, you should go and look at it. Funes really sees every single person as a complete individual. And not mm-hmm. only that, but each encounter he has with them is a completely unique encounter. And he has no assumptions to go on. And of course, he ends up in a mental asylum. Mm. <laughs> it's, so it's unavoidable that we make certain assumptions and... Mm-hmm. We should be ready to correct our assumptions, but I think it's it's also it's not that sinister that those we we begin from assumptions. That's always going to happen. Right. And so things like your skin color, which you didn't choose, and but you can't also you also can't remove it, and um, it's going to affect in some situations, maybe not always, but in some situations, it's going to affect how people see you and treat you. Mm-hmm. So. I feel that rather than saying, for example, I don't want to be seen as African-American, I just want to be seen as an individual, Mm -hmm. what you can say is, um, like that slogan that you have of of older women when they say, this is what 50 looks like, (laughs) you know, that slogan, (laughs) I'm 50, so I like this slogan. (laughs) I believe we're one generation apart, I think my, my father and your my father and your grandfather were born around the same year. Um, but that, I think there's a similar kind of thing of this is what an African-American is like or whatever mm. group, insert whatever group. And right. there's been a lot of controversy about this bringing in my own ethnicity into this for a moment with um, mm-hmm. the, the recent film, the Bohemian Rhapsody film. I've been following the coverage in India 
And I've actually yeah. written on it for um, India Today magazine. I wrote on the film for them because uh, Freddie Mercury changed his name so it no longer sounded Parsi. Um, he wrote a song saying, I was born in London town. He claimed to have been mm. born when he arrived in London at the age of 18. And mm. uh, he almost never mentioned his background, his Zoroastrian background or Indian background, mm. because he did not want to be in any sense seen as part of a small ethnic community. He wanted to be just seen as himself, and he wanted his appeal, the appeal of his art to be universal. And right. he was completely yeah. successful in that. But of course, and I think that was absolutely his right. And um, there is no way of, there's no way of laying claim to him as this is Parsi culture, <laughs> because mm -hmm. it's so atypical. <laughs> but at the same time, he's become a kind of icon in the Parsi community. So sure. just by leading the life that he led, he has definitely contributed to liberalizing. It was already a fairly liberal community, but to further liberalizing the Parsi community. Because mm -hmm. right. he is one of our icons, and you cannot have Freddie Mercury as an icon and be extremely prudish and narrow-minded. That's impossible. Mm. <laughs> so I think that's... A, a nice kind of option to bring your complexity back in to the group in a way to say, okay, this, mm. this group encompasses this complexity because I'm part of this group and here I am. This is what I'm like. Yeah. Well, and it also has the, the merit of being true, I think, mm. ultimately. Yeah. Um, I was listening to your conversation with uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams and uh, who is, uh, Thomas is half, um, he's half African-American, half German, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, he lives in Paris currently. And uh, Thomas, uh, who, uh, who I like and respect very much, um, he made guy. the point on your, oh yes, um, he made the point on your, uh, on this uh, podcast that he, um, and I'd heard him say it elsewhere as well, that I, I think he does not believe in racial labels at all, or he does not mm, humor yes. them. He doesn't refer to himself as African-American. He doesn't even refer to himself as mixed race, I think. Um, that's a term that he, uh, that he does not use. I think he has a very universalist um, way of referring to, uh, um, well, he just sort of a, a adopts a universalist perspective on humanity, where right? I don't think he sees much value in delineating people with these labels. Um, and I can I can certainly understand that. I mean, my sense of my own identity is I do not shirk away from the label African American. Um, I am African American, but I am also in being African American. I'm you know. I, every bit as much an Anglo-American. That's the part that confuses people is what I, <laughs> is when I, is when I own uh, being white, you know? And, um, you know, it's funny when I was, uh, when I was, uh, well, I, I'll, I'll give you a couple little anecdotes here. Cause when I was a kid growing up, um, you may have heard me tell the story. I, I don't know, but when I was a kid growing up, I was conscious of the fact that whereas most kids, parents, you know, were the same color, and most families I saw were 
the same color or close to the same color. I was aware of the fact that my mother was one color, I, my dad was another color, and I was a different color altogether. Uh, and so um, my mom being a bit darker African-American, my dad being being white and me being mixed race, I remember asking my dad once, I was probably five or six years old, I said, I said something like, I said, Dad, I said, Mom's black, right? And he said, yes. And I said, you're white, right? And he said, yes. I said, so what does that, what does that make me? And he looked at me and he said, well, he said, can't you tell, son? And I said, no. And he <laughs> held up my hand in front of my face and he showed me the back side of my hand. Uh, and he said, you're tan. And I said, I'm tan? He said, you're tan. <laughs> and so <laughs> my first professed, uh, you know, my first self-conscious racial Identi- racial identity uh, was neither black nor white, but tan. I went around calling myself tan racially, <laughs> racially tan for the first <laughs> two or three years of my life until I realized that that wasn't really a thing in other people's, <laughs> in other people's eyes. Razib um, Khan told me just um, a leaping in for a moment because this fits mm-hmm. with an anecdote he told me. And by the way, uh, with Razib, um, if anybody is listening, wants to go back to, to the episode with Razib at some point, Razib and I talked about the genetic history of India, but we also had a quite long digression on skin color inheritance, which I found very mm-hmm. fascinating. And it's especially common among Indians for reasons that Razib explained for there to be very different skin tones within the same family. And this is not about mixed race families. Mm -hmm. So the two parents can look exactly identical, but the children can be a wide range of skin colors. Right. And I'll refer you back to Razib for why that is, which I don't want to get into here. Mm -hmm. But Razib, who is, uh, Razib is Bengali and his wife is Anglo, Anglo Anglo-American. And um, his children are, his, his kids are, varying shades and his Mm. one of his sons i think his youngest son looks very white i.e he has blonde hair i think and blue eyes and he has a very anglo looking mean as razim would razib would describe it (laughs) but his skin is tan (laughs) i think it's exactly the right description and he said Mm. that his a lot of people are very puzzled by this. And when his wife was at the doctor's, uh, at the pediatrician, the pediatrician was more or less telling her off because he said, it's not safe to allow your child, who is clearly a you know, pale, blonde, <laughs> white child, mm-hmm. to get so sunburnt. This can cause skin cancer mm-hmm. in later <laughs> life. And she had to show him a picture of Razib. <laughs> <laughs> to explain how her son became tan. <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> he got it honest. Uh, yeah, yeah. People used to. I used. To, I can remember standing next to my dad in line at fast food restaurants or to get ice cream, and people would, you know, take his order, and then the cashier would look at me and say, "Is your mom or dad somewhere around here, sweetie?" And I could point to the point to the old <laughs> white guy next to me, like, "Yeah, that's that's him." <laughs> Yeah, I I have a friend also who said that she, um, when uh, she has this kind of coloring and look, which I'm quite jealous of because she has one of those racial mixes where wherever she goes, people think she's from there. Uh, You know, she passed for Indian, for Iranian, for Turkish, for Greek, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, 
And actually, she is half Russian and half uh, Japanese. Mm, And um, she said that when she's with her mother, people just absolutely refuse to believe that that's her mum. <laughs> they find it very hard to believe. And some people, I guess, would think of that as racist or prejudiced, but I don't. I think that's just funny. It's a natural assumption yeah. to make. It's like assuming mm-hmm. people are heterosexual. It's, you know, statistically, yeah. it's a fair assumption. And the only problem is if you absolutely refuse to be corrected when you get more information. That, for me, is the only issue. The assumption itself yeah. is neither here nor there. It's quite quite a logical assumption. Um, and... Mm-hmm. You know, the only the only time it gets bigoted is when people won't change their views given more given more detail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, personally, you know, the things most of the things that are these many of the things that I hear people counting as microaggressions have been things that have happened to me and that have not bothered me. I mean, I've <laughs> I certainly have had many people ask me, you know where I'm from or, you know, what are you, right? Mm. And I, I understand the question <laughs> that they're asking. And, you know, I, I don't mind telling them. I ask other people too, like, oh, okay, what, what's your, I look for more delicate ways of phrasing it these mm. days, mm. but, you know, I'm curious. To, so, so, so so where are your parents from? Or what is your, what's your nationality? Or what's your, what's your heritage, you know? But if somebody, to this day, if somebody says, so what are you? I'll just, I'll just say, oh, I'm black dad is white i used to have very long hair i used to in fact there's a time when i had a ponytail down to my waist and uh you know my hair when it would throw out first right so which is the way black people's hair tends to grow african hair tends to grow although my hair was always much finer and my curls were much bigger than most most uh most uh african americans or 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 people of african descent and uh, but when it got long enough, it would fall down um, and start to lay in a more kind of straight and wavy sort of way, especially if I brushed it out. So if I brushed it out and if it were wet in particular, I'd look like, I don't know, I'd have hair like Aragorn from Lord of the Rings. Or <laughs> I love like it. I so, like that. <laughs> so I was also, um, though much darker. Um, so I you, would need also, to, you need to post photos of this on Twitter now, you realize. <laughs> I have a few photos left. I'll, I'll, I'll dig them up. Thank you. Please. Um, <laughs> so I was also one of those people who, particularly when my hair started growing out like that, I'd have people who would, you know, who would think I was, they would think I was Persian or they'd think I was uh, Cuban or Dominican. Most people thought I was Latino, but I did get people who thought I might be Indian or Arab. Uh, so there was a time when I used to get that uh, fair amount. Um, but you know, when my hair was growing, I would have people who want to touch my hair. Usually it was black people who wanted to touch my hair, actually, at least when I was in school, but white people frequently did too. And I never minded. I was just like, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I'd want to touch it too. If I were, if I were you, it's luxurious <laughs> and gorgeous, <right>? you know, <laughs> sort of took that as a, as a compliment. Um, so, and you know, by the way, those are all elements of the, of the black experience, the hair has a cultural significance mm, in the African American mm. experience that, I mean, you know, I think hair has significance in, in, in other groups' experiences as well, but it's much more of a kind of social centerpiece. The, the act of, you know, having somebody, you know, having somebody braid your hair, having somebody, you know, you know, cut designs into your hair or shaping your fro or whatnot and all the different types of hairstyles that, you know, in, in many of which only black people can kind of, can kind of, 
can kind of do naturally yes. just because of the unique way in which African hair grows. Um, you know, relating to all that is all part of, I would say, what makes me African-American, right? It's, mm, it's mm. I mean, on a technical level, it's my, you know, genetic heritage, but on a cultural level, there are just certain experiences that, you know, somebody outside of that group um, could not quickly relate to because it's just unique to, you know, just, just, just unique to the patterns of black life and maybe black American life. But there are definitely experiences on the white side of my um, heritage and that come from that side of my background and my upbringing that allow me to sort of conscientiously identify with the white experience as well. So it, it's, it's a funny thing uh, because I am, uh, I, I'm in the maybe somewhat kind of, probably not entirely unique, but a somewhat unique uh, station of having a degree of sympathy, uh, even for some people on the white nationalist sort of end of things. Because while I, I see white nationalism as being informed and animated by historic and social prejudices and bitternesses that you know, just make it kind of a tragic and, and dangerous way of looking at the world for all types of reasons. I am conscious of the fact that growing up, I had ample permission from the world around me to be proud of being black. Um, but uh, I noticed that the black people I knew and grew up with, that people were frequently proud of being black, but white people growing up, I, who I grew up with, white kids uh, in school and and my social environments were conscious of the fact that they were not really allowed to be proud of being white uh, in any kind of a similar way. And of course, you know, you can say, well, there's good reason for that. The power imbalance contemporaneously and historically is, has, made for, uh, has made for a set of circumstances in our societies to where white pride is something that has been, first of all, a luxury of privilege, and second of all, an ideology that has led to, to violence and oppression and, and tragic consequences for people with less privilege and less power. So again, as kind of a means of making amends for these historic and perhaps contemporaneous injustices and inequities, we allow for certain groups to be proud of their heritage in a vocal way, whereas other groups are perhaps not allowed to, to be so. Uh, socially, but I can remember, uh, I can remember uh, another guy who was uh, like me. He was, he was mixed black and white. His mother was white and his father was black. The difference between us was that he was very popular and I was a nerd. He was, <laughs> you know, he was uh, a basketball player and a really handsome guy. This was back in I'd say seventh or eighth grade. We were probably you know twelve or thirteen years old, and um, it you know it because my dad was always adamant that I speak a certain way, that I speak the King's English, uh, in his words, uh, it, I was, it, I was a bit more shy about employing, uh, kind of a back black vernacular, you know, black idioms and so forth. So there's a certain way of speaking as a black person, which is, it varies from region to region, but there's kind of a spectrum of dialects within the black community that are more easily identifiable as as such, as black, right, as black ways of speaking. And uh, I was a little bit, uh, I, I, I was a little bit uh, shy about embracing those ways of speaking until I got to 
a point to where hitting my early teens, perhaps as part of the rebellion that tends to come with that, with that, uh, with that point in adolescence, I suddenly just became very black, right? And suddenly I was, you know, speaking a certain way and just really self-consciously integrating that into my identity. But this, but this other guy though, um, his name was Tony. Tony, um, was sort of a guy who I kind of looked to as someone I could be like, just in terms of embracing my own sort of identity. And, you know, we had similar backgrounds, but he had a lot more social capital than I, than I did. But I can remember I was talking to him about being black at some point. I forget what the particular conversation was. And he said something to me that I never forgot. He said, don't forget, John. He said, you're as white as you are black. And he said, and I am too. And that, that struck me because, and I never, I never forgot that it, it revealed to me that he was dealing with the tension that I was dealing with too, which is basically to say that in our socially sort of progressive environment, uh, as mixed race African and slash Anglo Americans, um, we were conscious of the fact that we were sort of allowed to be that black people were allowed to be proud of being black or as white people, our white peers weren't really allowed to be proud of being, of being white, but within ourselves, since we both wanted to sort of honor each side of our heritage in equal measure, um, we, in being proud of being black on the one hand felt sort of obligated to express some pride in being white. Also on the other hand, just on the basis of the fact that, these were equal parts of our self-conception. Mm. And yet in being half black, we weren't really looked at as being heirs of white privilege or, you know, the, the legacy of oppression and persecution that had come down through, you know, the history of, of Anglo people in America and in Europe and so forth, mm. uh, so that we would feel as if we necessarily had that stigma but we, we both felt proud of being white almost because it seemed as if we, we needed to in order to maintain both halves of our identity and that level with equal dignity. And so, you know, I told that story because I was mentioning the fact that I have some, some sympathy, I guess, in terms of part of what psychologically I see some of these white nationalist types is dealing with because I think that they're they're reaching for some cultural expression that other white people maybe don't need so much. So John, mm -hmm. talking about identities and people judging each other by their identities, I want to um, come full circle and return to Democrats and Republicans and the polarization of political discourse. And I'm really interested in an idea that that you proposed actually in our magazine, Ario Magazine. Thank you so much for writing for us. Um, piece which I actually edited, so I remember it well. Um, no wonder it was so good. <laughs> um, I'm going to take all the credit. <laughs> no. um, um, so Jonathan Haidt, who's also been on this podcast, listeners, so you can find um, uh, my interview with Jonathan and Greg Lukianov if you go back through the past issues talks about moral foundations theory, which to summarize very briefly, he says that there are basically five foundations underlying ethics, care, harm, fairness, cheating, fidelity, and betrayal, 
and then I think there is respect for authority and flouting of authority. And there's sanctity and taboo. I think those are the five. That, that might not be exactly Haidt's precise terminology. I'm repeating them from memory. Whereas liberals usually subscribe to the care harm and the fairness cheating foundations, especially care harm. Right. Conservatives are more likely to spread their their mor- moral foundations across all five um, mm-hmm. of these of these categories. And but you had a rather different way of approaching it. So you talk about three categories of ethical system that we can apply to politics, and one is a consequentialist approach. The second is a deontological de- approach. Mm-hmm. And uh, or a rule-based approach, I think, is a deontological means kind of rule-based. Mm-hmm. And the third one is what you propose, which is a virtue ethics. Could you mm-hmm. run us through what you mean by those three concepts? Sure. And um, those concepts um, are, are not really, I think, in conflict with what it is that uh, Professor Height, who, by the way, is actually a board member of Better Angels uh, himself. Um, oh, wonderful. But, mm-hmm, yeah. Um, but, yeah, my way of looking at um, morality in, in terms of how it ought be, we ought to emphasize it in a political and social context doesn't really conflict with Height's formulation, but it gets at a different uh, truth, I think. Um so deontological uh, ethical systems are, in essence, rules-based systems. So any, for the most part, any religious morality you might be familiar with is deontological because there are a set of rules, like, say, the Ten, the Ten Commandments, for instance, or the Torah, um, or, uh, or uh, the, the law that is illustrated in the Quran. There are uh, rules, rule-based systems that you have to abide by in order to fulfill the, your, your, your ethical obligations. Um, consequentialist uh, morality or utilitarian uh, types of systems, on the other hand, call upon us to examine the outcomes of actions in order to determine their moral worth. So, you know, if you're talking if you're asking uh, if you're asking a question, you know, should I help uh, this? Should I help an old lady across the street when I'm running late uh, for an appointment with my wife? Then you have to, you know, if you're approaching it like a consequentialist, you you do a cost benefit analysis. You think, okay, well, if I help this old lady across the street, I'll be doing a good thing for her. But is that as will I be doing as much good for her as I will be doing bad to my wife by making her wait another? five or 10 minutes, uh, given the fact that I'm already late. And depending on where the balance uh, shakes out in that uh, equation, that is what the uh, moral action, uh, that will tell you what the moral action in that circumstance happens to be. Virtue ethics is not about, it's not about holding to a set of prescribed rules for moral behavior, nor is it so much about calculating the morality of a particular outcome. Uh, virtue is about virtue ethics is about simply embodying um, 
embodying virtue in one's character and allowing that to be the sort of motivating force behind one's action. Virtue doesn't call upon us to abide by any uh, prescribed set of rules or to employ a cost-benefit analysis to our actions, although you know, a virtuous person may, may do that to, to whatever degree. But the emphasis of virtue ethics is on aligning our characters with the qualities of virtue itself or with the virtues themselves. So rather than thinking in terms of, okay, am I aligning with these rules for behavior or am I calculating the outcome of a certain ethical scenario correctly or incorrectly, uh, a, per- a person acting uh, in acting in accordance with virtue is is seeking simply to embody honesty. He's seeking he or she is seeking to embody uh, courage or compassion or loyalty or faithfulness. And how these things might express themselves? Well, they can vary from situation to situation. So in that sense, it it is akin to consequentialism but not fundamentally so, because what it calls upon us to do is to examine our inward motivations for acting in a certain way and does not require us to necessarily have any complete and total certainty as to what the outcome of a certain moral action will be in order for us to commit to that action. In other words, we commit to moral actions on the basis not of a certainty of of the of the outcome of a certain action or of the probable of the probability of a certain outcome so much as we commit to an action on the basis of whether or not that which motivates us and that which we are embodying in our actions is aligned with virtue is it aligned with courage is it aligned with wisdom is it aligned with kindness and honesty etc cetera, etc cetera? there are different virtues of course and um, this calls upon us to reflect upon internal char- upon our personal characters as the foundation for moral action as opposed to raw uh, calculation or uh, fidelity to a certain formula or mode of behavior. Now, the reason I emphasize these categories in that piece I wrote for Ario is because I look at our politics as being locked into uh, a moral paradigm which focuses on deontological ethics. Not that most people know what these terms mean, but most people in our politics think either in deontological terms or consequentialist terms. So deontological political thinking, I think, is political thinking that stems with a uh, pre- stems from a preoccupation with rights. You th- if somebody argues for gun control, for instance, by saying, I have a right to a gun, uh, to bear arms because of the Second Amendment, or if you're a liberal person who says that, oh, people have a right to health care, it's from a philosophical presupposition. There are certain codes or rules in place derived from whatever the ancestor ancestral philosophy or ideology might be that causes people to think in terms of what the rules ought to be as dictating what an ethical sort of political uh, position might happen to be. And on the other hand, the consequentialist side, the the consequentialist side of our ethical instincts uh, in a political context causes us to look at policy and to say, okay, how many people will this uh, 
this health type of healthcare policy, um, public policy, manage to manage to cover, or uh, you know, how much will this tax policy allow us to cut the deficit or to grow the economy? Um, and so, these are the modes in which we tend to engage political discourse, and I think that there's value in those things. But the problem comes in the fact that when it comes to our interpersonal dealings in a political context, we have a tendency to look at people's deontological presuppositions or consequentialist patterns in terms of how they ethically engage uh, politics, and to the degree to which they are out of variance with our own ethical kinds of um, ideological patterns and how it is we engage with politics it justifies us in, in applying a thick layer of judgmentalism to the way it is other people think uh, politically, not just on the basis of whether or not their political opinions are, you know, more or less beneficial or not beneficial, um, but even to the degree to, the, to, to where we ascribe value to their worth as a person on the basis of how they think politically. But if instead we were to evaluate one another on the basis of our perception or understanding of virtue as it emanates from each other's character. If, in other words, I, as a conservative, were able to look at a liberal person and say, okay, I disagree with their consequentialist um, assessment of what makes for a good policy, but beneath that layer, I can see that this person is honest. I can see that this person is compassionate. I can see that this person is perhaps courageous or prudent or fair-minded or wise across a host of, of directly and indirectly um, related or relevant categories, then I am able to, and vice versa, then we are able to develop our interpersonal relationship with each other on the basis of those considerations and through a mutual sort of emphasis of the worth and value of these sorts of these transcendent moral categories, these categories of virtue, uh, we can, those who are concerned with those categories uh, a priori, uh, prior to being concerned with our sorts of more, with our consequentialist or deontological sorts of political dispositions, put themselves in a posture to be able to incentivize and to encourage one another to act in accordance with honesty and to act in accordance with prudence and to collaboratively and dialectically perhaps seek the truer expression of these virtues, both in our political positions, but also in the flavor of our interpersonal discourse, because it will suddenly be the substance of virtue that takes preeminent um, uh, that takes preeminence in the context of what we value in our social and political relationships and not first and foremost the policy positions that we start off uh, holding in in our dialogues and over the long run that makes a world of difference because ultimately politics is not really the practice of one side being able to achieve everything that they want to achieve in political negotiation. Politics is much more about finding, uh, about, about through dialectic and through negotiation and, you know, through some, through some real competition, 
defining and redefining consensus in the light of evolving circumstances and achieving the optimal con- compromise based off of based off of uh, the strengthening of consensus over time. But our ability to strengthen consensus is wholly dependent uh, upon the degree to which our relationships with one another are healthy and rooted in in mutual positive regard. Uh, so the degree to which we do regard one another uh, with mutual esteem and goodwill, uh, that is the degree to which we'll be able to collaborate together in good faith politically and socially. And we can create space for that sort of regard to grow and blossom out of a common concern with moral character and virtuous conduct, not on the basis of precise intellectual agreement, but on the basis of a common recognition of the fact that goodness is sort of a transcendent transcendent quality. Um, if we do not have that common transcendent sort of moral concern, then the only thing that we have to bind us apart from raw common interest is our capacity for specific intellectual agreement, which obviously declines across across the breadth and diversity of a given of a diversity of not just identity but experience of a given population. And so, to tie that to Jonathan Haidt's moral foundations. Um, what it means is that, and this is relevant to the work of Better Angels as well, it means that in order for us to communicate with each other effectively, we need to speak to the moral foundations that indicate the virtues that are most sort of presently um, relevant to the persons to whom we're speaking. So if you take his formulation and you think, well, liberals are concerned with compassion and fairness and conservatives uh, are relatively more concerned with uh, sanctity and loyalty, then it is possible for a liberal to speak in terms that appeal to the foundation of sanctity, to talk about those things which are sacred in his or her perspective. And it is possible for a conservative to speak to a liberal in terms of the values that he or she sees in compassion or the values and positions and perspectives that are harmonious with the value of compassion. And in so doing, uh, we give ourselves the opportunity to refine our understanding of all of these moral foundations, uh, again, through a common commitment uh, to these moral foundations or to these transcendent virtues uh, that ultimately, I think, even if one if one personality type or the other may tend to emphasize one group of them over the other, are nevertheless all moral foundations or all virtues that have resonance uh, with the sort of with with I guess with the human constitution more or less across the political spectrum. Ultimately, um, if we can find our way towards more a, f- a fuller explication and understanding of what the substance of these virtues and values are. So it's a conversation that allows for a great deal more fluidity of understanding between individuals and between groups that can set the stage for a mutual regard that in and of itself can serve as the foundation for the optimizing or the maximizing 
of consensus and ultimately material compromise in the political realm. Uh, but the way to that kind of higher functioning civic discourse and democratic uh, uh, governance, I think, begins all the way down at the roots of our moral conception and the plane upon which we have interpersonal and intergroup conversations that start not so much with the ideological differences, but with the moral and ethical commonalities or common concerns. And that is the place uh, where I wish to see us relocate the heart of our civic and social conversation so we can get to a place to where our political structures and institutions can more or less reflect the values of the type of society that I think the vast majority of us actually want to see. And that's a society rooted in goodwill and uh, genuine, genuine virtue and moral concern. John, I'm conscious that your time is coming to an end. Is there anything that you would like to say that you haven't had a chance to say yet? Sure. And, uh, well, I appreciate that. And um, this, is a, this is a great podcast, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to, uh, to be and to have been a part of uh, the ARIO family uh, as well. ARIO has just been a wonderful it's been a wonderful platform, and it has brought so many uh, remarkable thinkers and writers together. And I, for anybody who's not in the habit of reading the articles over on ARIO Magazine, I suggest that you absolutely uh, get into that routine because uh, there's a tremendous wealth of, of thought that comes through there, and I'm happy to play a small part in it. Um, I, you know, I would ask folks, uh, particularly any listeners in the United States, first of all, uh, to look into the work of Better Angels. And you can find out more about us at www. Uh, I guess I don't really need to say the www anymore, do we? But uh, better-angels.org. And it's a membership organization. And if you're able to become a member, then that gives you the opportunity to participate in organizing uh, these sorts of programs and uh, workshops, as I described. And there's all sorts of other ways in which our community over at Better Angels is working together to depolarize the, dif the discourse and create bridges between these different communities. So check that out. Um, and uh, if anybody is interested in following me at Twitter, I'm at John R. Wood Jr. And um, I hope that this is not our last uh, uh, conversation because I, I really uh, had a good time and appreciate the chance to uh, to be on here with uh, with you, Iona. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure. And so looking forward to doing it again. Thank you so much for coming on, John. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I will add those links to the show notes. Have a lovely week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, 
and two for tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.